0: Support for PropG comes from ServiceNow. Seems everyone is talking about AI. The hype's everywhere. It's writing college essays, running earnings reports, and fabricating my voice so well that I'll no longer need to record podcast ads. Just kidding about the last one. But you know what's not a joke? ServiceNow's ability to put AI to work across your business. With their intelligent platform, you can improve customer experiences, help non-coders to code, accelerate your IT team's productivity, and resolve HR cases faster. So work can actually work better for everyone. So stop the hype and start putting AI to work. Go to servicenow.com genai to see why the world works with ServiceNow. Welcome to the Prop G Pod's Office Hours. This is the part of the show where we answer your questions about business, big tech, entrepreneurship, and whatever else is on your mind. If you'd like to submit a question, please visit officehours.profgmedia.com. Again, that's officehours.profgmedia.com. First question. Hey, Prof G, this is Austin from Denver. First time, long time. You've pulled no punches in your assault on meta and have been in your skepticism on the prospects of society, leaning into the metaverse, VR, and wearing visible fornication prophylactics. By the same token, pardon the pun, You've been quite optimistic about NFTs and their prospects for a store and exchange of value in virtual worlds that the population will increasingly be a part of. Could you resolve that discrepancy for your listeners between your bearishness on the metaverse while being simultaneously bullish on NFTs? Appreciate your work. Your newsletter is appointment Sunday morning reading. Uh, thanks for the thoughtful question. Austin from Denver. Well, I'm Georgia from New York. I love that. A city from a city. Austin from Denver. That's kind of cool. Awesome. that's an awesome name. That's, a, that's like a superhero name or a detective, Detective Austin. Uh, Denver has a nice brand too. I've spent almost no time in Denver, but I get this feeling it's about to boom because it sort of feels like beautiful, kind of the benefits of a city, but not as crazy as expensive. I have a close friend who's thinking about moving to Denver just because on brand, he barely knows something. Like I'm going to move to Denver. Not what you were asking about. So let's be clear. Uh, I'm sort of semi-bullish on the metaverse because I think the metaverse is already working, specifically when I see my kids playing uh, Fortnite or Warcraft or uh, FIFA, and it's attached to them like a fricking morphine drip and their ability to socialize on it, their want or their desire to spend money and microtransactions on it, just the incredible programming. I occasionally play with them. I'm not a video game person, but just to learn about it, and I'm consistently impressed with just how much effort... And creativity, uh, uh, go into these go into these incredible pieces of art or technology, whatever you want to call them. So I, I think that uh, I'm bullish, if you will, or acknowledge the metaverse. What I'm bearish on is the Zuckerverse, or specifically the portal that is the oculus. Uh, I think the portal that wins here is airpods or your TV screen. I just don't think it's going to be the oculus. And I think it's a huge strategic error to be doubling down on a metaverse, if you will, that is compliant or uh, the front end of it is this headset. I think that's an enormous strategic error for them. I do think it'll have B2B uh, applications, whether it's performing surgery or going to a specific, doing something very um, that is so esoteric and there's so much value add to being in an operating room in Delhi when you can't be there that you're willing to put on this device and endure that discomfort. But if you're looking to relax, I just don't think it's relaxing to put that thing on your head. Uh, anyways, I don't think, I don't think we're going to see uh, what we saw happen to crypto in 2020 play out as viciously and as violently. I think it'll be more self-sustaining, but I don't see why the metaverse wouldn't have kind of the same arc of crypto, where it has a lot of capital, a lot of smart people very into it. Uh, we're talking about it, which is half the point. I'm actually thinking about putting some money uh, into real estate in the metaverse. And uh, with crypto, the underlying technology is a bit of a mythology. You can't use it for practical transactions. I still can't get anyone to answer me how the blockchain or NFTs have changed their life or even their consumer world. How What are they doing? What are they buying? What service are they using that's dependent upon these technologies? With real estate, you can monetize potentially these NFTs by selling billboard ads or renting your space. Plus, you can use it to signal your wealth. CNBC reported Virtual real estate sales topped $500 in 2021. And according to New York Magazine, people are already taking out mortgages on land in the metaverse. Jesus, that's crazy, isn't it? So uh, to summarize, I am sort of bullish on the metaverse. I think it's already here. I think it's just being rebranded. I think there'll be a lot of interesting new technologies and opportunities and games and ways to make money. Uh, What I'm bearish on is the Zuckerverse. Thanks for the question. Question number two. Hello, Prof. G. I'm a big fan of the show. Just had a quick question. With all these companies being acquired by private equity, do you think that private equity companies are unregulated monopolies? Thank you. Mm, That's an interesting question, Joe. Uh, So when I think of monopoly, mono means one. I think that there's one or duopoly, two or oligopoly. I think that means you know several firms, but highly concentrated. There are a lot of pretty substantial. I mean, you know, KKR, uh, Apollo, Vista, and there's some pretty big private equity firms, you know, raising a shit ton of capital. I would bet there's 10 private equity firms that can do really big acquisitions and that it's pretty competitive in the sense that, you know, if you're trying to build an online ed tech firm, section four, and you're trying to acquire customers online, there's kind of two games in town. There's Facebook, and there's Google. Whereas if you're an entrepreneur that has a great business, uh, you're going to get calls from a lot of different private equity firms. So I don't know. I, I don't. I don't think it's fair to call that call that industry uh, concentrated. I mean, I guess I wonder what percentage of total capital is raised by the top ten private equity firms versus all of it. But I have a lot of friends who work in middle market private equity, and they raise you know big funds, and most people have never even heard of them. So it feels like it's. There's a healthy amount of competition there. According to the Wall Street Journal, private equity firms announced a record 900 billion in deals in the U.S. for 2021. So almost a trillion dollars in deals. That was two and a half times the volume of deals in 2020. Basically, low interest rates mean that you can borrow stuff and just hold onto it for a long time at a very low cost because you're not paying. It's just so, and it's free money. You know, what do you want? Okay, As long as we think the firm is growing and we have the right person. Uh, At some point, we'll be able to sell it for more than we bought it for. And here's the bottom line. I don't think it's a monopoly. I think it's a fairly healthy ecosystem. A lot of people have problems with the way private equity operates. They come in, cut costs. A lot of money accretes to a small number of people. Yeah, maybe. Um, But at the end of the day, I, I actually think this is kind of a success story in capitalism. They get good returns to their shareholders. A lot of whom are probably public pension funds. Do the people in private equity make a shit ton of money? Yeah, I know a lot of private equity people. They're very smart. They work very hard. And I'm always amazed when any deal closes, given how many moving parts there are. I don't don't kind of resent or begrudge the incredible money they make. I think they sort of deserve it, given someone who sold companies. To get a deal close just takes so much creativity and energy and skill. Uh, and it also raises the boats and valuations of uh, private companies run by entrepreneurs. So I think their ecosystem is quite quite healthy. There's a lot of private equity firms. The barriers to setting up a private equity firm aren't that great. If you work at Bain Capital and spin off and start your own private equity firm, you can raise a lot of capital and start you know going to companies. And it's not like you have network effects and you've sequestered The entire marketplace from your consumer set, basically, entrepreneurs will listen to anyone who can write a bigger check. So entrepreneurs have a variety of buyers. They have really a strong ecosystem to sell into. So who does this market really favor right now? It really favors entrepreneurs and owners who are sitting on top of great private assets. Uh, And when we're in this part of the cycle, a lot of times you end up in a flurry of or hysteria where the competition gets so heated for the best assets that it's private equity firms that overpay. And it's the shareholders and private companies that do really well. So I would argue that the private equity ecosystem, like any other capitalist ecosystem, has some externalities we should be mindful of. But I think it's actually a pretty healthy ecosystem with a lot of competition and is functioning as you would hope that uh, a market does in a capitalist society. Thank you for the question. We have one quick break before our final question. Stay with us. Support for property comes from Fundrise. You know the adage, buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now, demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. Support for our show comes from Sonos. Usually when we read ads for the show, I get a whole page of talking points they want me to hit, But get this, Sonos sends me their latest portable speaker, Move 2, and no script. They just want me to share with you what I honestly think of it. And after listening to the speaker, I get why Sonos is so confident that I'd have good things to say. It's fantastic, it's incredible that this kind of fidelity and acoustics and sound comes from such a little device. I mean, it really packs a punch. And also, I have been buying Sonos for 10 or 15 years now. I know the CEO, I know people uh, that work there. They're just good people and a nice company, and they make an outstanding product. The battery life of Move 2 is so so good, giving up to 24 hours of playback. And because it's weather and drop resistant, you can bring it anywhere. Just think of all the places you could listen to this podcast. What a thrill. Seriously, you won't believe how good I sound on this speaker. Every stream counts, people. Come on. Come on. Invest in this relationship. To learn more about MoveTo and other Sona speakers, visit Sonos.com. That's S-O-N-O-S.com. Welcome back. Question number three. Hi, Scott. This is Ben from Utah. I wanted to get your take on professional coaches. I jumped into self-employment about a year ago when I bought a company. It's a seven-person team, and I'm still trying to get my systems in order and for everybody to buy into my vision of where the company can go. My question is, you mentioned professional coaching in the past, and I wanted you to elaborate on your experience and how they fit into the ecosystem of advisors and mentors and everybody else. Uh, at our disposal. Um, I don't hear a lot about professional coaches. Are they the unspoken superpower of corporate America? Are they worth it? Um, Are they just unlicensed therapists for CEOs who can't admit that they need therapy? And um, if I do decide to get one, when and how do you know when you're ready to retire them? would love to hear your feedback. Thanks. Uh, ben from Utah, an interesting question. I don't know that much about "quote unquote" the coaching business. I do a lot of coaching of young men, because again, I rail a lot about the the shortcomings or the failure, the existential crisis of failing young men. And I want to be part of the solution, even if it means just meeting with a. You know, I was I met with a 15 year old boy uh, a couple weeks ago, the uh, son of a of a friend who was struggling. Um, who just got kicked out of school and was a really good kid. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I'm going to say the same thing their parents are, except for, for whatever reason, they listen to me and not their parents. And uh, so that's the only thing. I, I'm, I immediately turn this into me. Uh, uh, that's the kind of thing. And my virtue signaling. But I think coaching and mentoring is just super important. And every CEO, or not even every CEO, every executive, Christ, everybody needs coaching and mentoring. I have some friends, a friend of mine is the CEO of LivePerson, this great CRM company chat software, and he always had a professional coach and he was pretty open about it. So I don't think I'm speaking out of school. And the idea, I think of a coach versus a mentor is that you can lean on them more heavily because you're paying them. But what I find is there's a lot of people uh, who've registered some success who are open to coaching younger people. And it is such a gift uh, that I didn't discover till later in life. And the mi- mistake I made as a younger man is I thought reaching out for help or for mentors was a little bit a sign of weakness and I didn't invest in much of those relationships as I should have, but I was blessed with these coaches. When I lived on the West Coast, You know, Warren Hellman, uh, Paul Stevens, uh, Hamid Mogadam, Tully Friedman, all these you know dudes that were a little bit older than me who took an interest in my professional life and, and, and personal well-being and coached and mentored me. Pat Connolly from Williams-Sonoma. Now, there's this incredibly successful men who uh, I could call and would give me advice. Uh, I do that a lot, and it's not altruism. I enjoy it. Uh, people, people enjoy uh, using their experience and their expertise and their judgment to counsel other people. It's rewarding. So uh, on professional coaching, I don't know, We have good or bad, I'm somewhat neutral on it. What I'm a huge bull on and think it's incredibly important for every person from the beginning of their career is to find people in your life and say, is it cool if I reach out to you for help? Greatness is in the agency of others. And whether it's a full-time coach, if that works for you, because you don't want to lean on somebody and you want them to be a little bit more dispassionate and you want to be able to call them and have an hour a week, yeah, think of it as professional therapy, whatever you want to call it. Maybe that works for you. But at a minimum, have a group of people that you can lean on because you're going to face dozens, if not hundreds of decisions every week that you may just not have the right answer for. Maybe you have the right answer, but you need someone to validate or craft a better solution. So held to the yes on coaches and mentors, I think it's just sort of up to you, the format, the cadence, and the relationship. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a great idea, and it's something... I was blessed with uh, growing up professionally and every person should devote energy to developing. Thanks for the question. That's all for this episode. Again, if you'd like to submit a question, please submit a voice recording by visiting officehours.propgmedia.com. Our producers are Caroline Chagrin and Drew Burroughs. Claire Miller is our assistant producer. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Prop G pod from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you on Thursday.